Hey everyone, welcome to After the Kids Go Down. We're your hosts. I'm Eileen Sonu. And I'm Bona Lou. Last night, my dad stayed over so that me and Andrew could go to Taco Mac. Where I was just picking his brain about some of the stuff that has been on my mind. So you know Andrew loves music. And he loves making playlists, right? Like any kid from like the 90s and 2000s. Do you remember like getting CDs and giving CDs to friends with I, different songs? I never like, made CDs for people. But Sharpie I, on yeah, the Yeah, I remember getting them. I feel like people were really prideful about like, oh, yeah. their, their list oh, or yeah. like the music that they could. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Anyway, whenever we go to a pool in the neighborhood, Andrew will bring his speaker. Yeah. He has playlists. He had two pool mixes. The first pool mix had in parentheses, white next to it. And there was another <laughs> pool mix playlist that had in parentheses, black next to it. And we brought that up because I think talking about these tangible things can feel really cringy. It feels like I'm generalizing and I am because I'm pinning these like pop culture things that I think belong to different groups. Mm -hmm. But I think this all goes to show that the ways that we see different groups, it's about perception and how I perceive that said group. I know people get to talking about whether they disagree or agree with what we see as those traits mm -hmm. of each group. And I think you could do that all day because it's not, it's not about the facts. Like those aren't facts. And so when I talk about these parts of me that I name as Asian parts, white, black parts, it's parts of what I see as my own multicultural identity and the ways that I perceive myself to be when I'm hanging out with different sociocultural groups. And I do think in different settings, depending on where I am, different parts of me feel more salient in that moment. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm hanging out with my Asian American friends, the Asian American parts of me are at the forefront. Mm -hmm. If I'm hanging out with some Fabi friends from Korea, then the native Korean parts of me are at the forefront. Mm -hmm. When I'm hanging out with my neighborhood friends, like the white mom friends and and church moms, like, you know, we go to a, Your an American church. Comes out. I'm just kidding. Right. I'm just kidding. Right. Just my kidding. Starbucks just kidding. toting. <laughs> you're, you're talking about code switching. Like yeah. you said, yeah. Yeah. It used to really confuse me. And I remember when I was a teenager, wondering if I had multiple personalities and I was absolutely loony. But I think I was just recognizing the act of my own code switching that just helped me to survive and thrive in different groups. Yeah. I thought I just didn't know who I was. You know, it was part of all the confusions that we felt as a teenager. But now, in hindsight, I, I'm realizing, oh, like I still do that. It's just I'm at peace with it now because I realize it's all me mm -hmm. and they just coexist. Anyway, I think this illustrates that I, I really do have parts of me that I can talk about that I have gotten from like white culture distinctly. There's like a store of knowledge where I know if I draw from anything from there, that this will be a conversation that is comfortable for this white friend or this white person. Mm -hmm. And so I was asking Andrew, like, what would you describe that as? He called it a catering, catering to whiteness. Like talking about things that we know are familiar to them. Why does he feel the need to like cater though? It's not about a need to cater. We were just trying to describe like, what is it that we're doing? Like when we're able to comfortably hang, hang out around white friends and not feel out of place, if we had a breakdown, like how to do that, what is it that we're doing? Yeah. I don't like that word cater then. I know it's just, um, it's just semantics 
at this point, but I feel like mm-hmm. cater it, it signifies like you are bending towards. But that like, is what posture. we're doing. We're centering whiteness. I'm trying to explain to you like what's going on, mm-hmm. what's going on in the dynamic of like hanging out with white friends. What we've always done when so, we hang you, out with white are, friends. But you you explaining it? Do you feel like it's like a a good or bad thing, or is it just neutral? I don't see it as a bad thing. I guess because they're not forcing me to cater to them. I'm doing it willingly. I would question that though. I would question, question whether, or not, what? whether or not you are, you are doing it willingly, but you also said before that when you are like the one minority mm-hmm. in, in a group, like it's hard to, it's really hard to speak up yeah. about anything, yeah. you know? So you're going to just blend in. About harmless things. Yes. I don't think it's bad to blend in and cater to the majority culture when it's things that like, it's like movies, music, like it's mm-hmm. fine. But if it's something that matters to me mm-hmm. and it's about somebody's rights mm-hmm. or just someone's differences and that you want to be protective of, like in those cases, I think you can uh, you can judge like whether that catering is good or bad. But I think the just the majority culture stuff, like the pop culture or yeah. the film culture, or music culture, that part, it doesn't, it's like inconsequential to me. Mm. I guess the word catering makes me think of like trying to make someone comfortable. You know, that's like, exactly what it is though. Yeah, but I feel like, you know what it is? Mm-hmm. It's because I feel like we have been made to feel so uncomfortable like most of the time mm-hmm. that I'm like, why are we trying to make white For people sure. comfortable? And that's the way that, that's the way I feel these days where I cater as much as my experience coincides with that Mm. majority culture but I definitely don't shy away from making them uncomfortable if Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. something that I'm not staying true to myself today it's not like I ever go out there wanting to make people uncomfortable like if you know my personality just like you said I I don't go out there trying to create disruption right right but it's odd, like the the opportunities do seem to present themselves more these days now that it's on my mind and mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it all the time. Like recently, we were invited to a party. It was all white people there. I got into a conversation with one family and the husband, he had a job that took him overseas. And so they asked if we speak multiple languages at home. And I said, you know, I'm trying my best to speak Korean to the kids. I don't know how well it's going, but I'm trying. Mm -hmm. And so I think that he meant it as a compliment to me when he said that he's met some Asian families where the parents made it a point to not teach their native language to the kids. And so then the kids just lost the language of their parents Mm -hmm. and were only able to speak English. And he said, that's such a shame. And while I understand where he's coming from, like he's saying, oh, that's tragic. While I understood that, I just felt this need to share my perspective. I said, I'm sure they would have loved their children to speak their native language and stay connected to their heritage too. But sometimes that's the cost of assimilating, adapting, and surviving in a culture that's not your own. Those parents definitely wanted their children to be accepted and succeed in this society that doesn't reward being different. So even if that means choppy conversations with their children who can't speak their language and missing out on that deeper relationship, they're often willing to pay that price for their children's future in in a foreign country. 
It's not a shame. It's a steep and painful price. Fucking mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) I know you gave up swearing for Lent, but fucking mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually said all of that to him. What did he say? He was nodding very soberly and solemnly. He didn't get defensive which I really appreciated. And also, I didn't say it to him in a hostile tone. It was just a sharing of a a new and um, minority perspective. He's just, because he probably thought he was just relating to you like empathetically, but then you just like decided to rip him a new asshole. (laughs) (laughs) But like politely. (laughs) Um, It was still pleasant afterwards. I mean, I'm hoping it stays with him in some way. You know. I have also been in uncomfortable situations like this before. I think like well in the past, if I was put on the spot like that, I just felt my sense of confidence crumbling Mm -hmm. and me feeling really defensive and hurt trying to pick up the pieces of my worth. You know, like that's not what I meant. That's not what I was trying to say. Like I need to explain to him Mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm a good person, you know, coming from that perspective. But when this happened, this instance that I want to talk about, it was different. Mm-hmm. It was during COVID. It was in March for Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. After um, George Floyd. Yeah. And we were walking kind of like all spread out. I was walking with one of the kids and I happened to be walking next to one of the organizers of the march. And I, I didn't know that at the time that I was talking to him. And I think in conversation I just organically weaved in, I sympathize with you and what you're going through. And um, I can understand as an Asian American. He was a black man? Yeah. He very matter-of-factly told me, not mainly, just neutrally, politely told me that I don't understand how he feels right now. Mm -hmm. While he gets that I'm also a, a minority and a person of color, that there is a difference in his experience and mine and that I can't possibly understand everything that he's feeling right now. So he asked me if I knew about the race massacres that had happened in U.S. history. He named a couple of cities and communities. I hadn't learned about them. Mm -hmm. Definitely didn't learn about them in school. And then I didn't know about them in depth. So I told him I didn't. And then I ended up looking it up later and just being so shocked and just frankly disgusted with these atrocities that had happened in US history that I had never learned about nobody ever talks about so it was it was a really humbling moment for me where i felt really uncomfortable but it quickly gave way to just making space for his story and his experience and the perspective that he was giving was so full of pain and a perspective that I didn't have myself, that it just commanded my attention. Mm, mm -hmm. And there was no room for me to nurse my ego Mm -hmm. over it. It didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And I just instinctively knew in my body that this wasn't about me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about trying to tell him about how, convince him of how I really did know how he feels or the similarities in the Black community and the Asian community. I was like, this is not the time and the place. Mm -hmm. It was a really valuable, uncomfortable experience for me to grow from. It like widened my perspective. Mm, I totally relate with what you said about how 
when something's uncomfortable, you know, you I, I would just want to draw it back to like, oh, that's not what he meant. And like, you know, try to make it right, like in mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. and clarify just so I don't feel like I'm stupid and wrong or whatever. I mean, I want to say like a big part of like why you were able to take it in that moment, you know, is, I mean, I personally know you, like all the work that you've been doing, like behind the scenes, just like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it does take like confidence in yourself for like yourself, your ego not to shatter in handling someone else's pain. You took that on as like, oh, like this isn't about me right now. It was tricky because I have a lot of wounds from invalidation and dismissing my feelings or having my feelings be dismissed. That really is like the foundation of a lot of my childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. In that moment, though, it wasn't invalidating our Asian experience. Mm. It wasn't dismissing our Asian experience. It made me curious about do I really know Black experience? It also did make me question, do I know Asian experience historically? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be Black or white, as in you're either honoring it or dismissing it. I think it can be that it's still, your Asian experience is still important to you and it's still valid, but there's always more to learn about. There's Mm -hmm. always more to take a look at. And another thing that I learned then is it's not apples to apples. Mm -hmm. Yes, like as minorities, we want to band together. And and yes, like you're going to feel some sense of camaraderie with each other in certain social situations. But something like historically or socially over such a long span of time, I mean, you can't compare in a parallel way. Yeah. It seems like you've had to code switch pretty hard from what I know about your story, your background. And I came across this article from NPR. They researched why people code switched and they came up with five motivations. You know, some of the things were just like our our lizard brain takes over, which means it's kind of inadvertent, instinctive, I guess. But two motivations that I found interesting and probably more um, pertinent to what you're talking about. The first one was we code switch to fit in and we do it consciously and unconsciously. And then another one was we want to get something. People will code switch not just to fit in, but to actively ingratiate themselves to others, meaning we want to be in favor with people. And the other things were just like, you know, you want to say something in secret and it helps us convey a thought, which uh, what I found interesting too was that code switching, it's, it comes from like a linguistics background of actually switching languages. You know, I've heard you go from Korean to English often, you know? And so, you know, all that to say that I, I think you've had to do it very explicitly because from what you told me, you know, you've you've literally moved continents a few times. Let's get into your story, your upbringing to give some context. To give context, but also it's, I find it pretty fascinating just like from an experience that's different than mine. So yeah, you want to talk about where you were born and um, your experiences moving around? So I was born in Korea and uh, lived there for the first four years of my life. So we lived together with my grandparents. I was really attached to her. And she was really attached to me. And at four, we left Korea. So my grandmother still talks about this every time we uh, talk on the phone about how after we left, she just collapsed on the airport floor crying. Oh my God, that makes me want to cry. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, she, I mean, she was on the ground like wailing. Because I think back then it was 1989. So we didn't have FaceTime. So yeah, so we left for New York City and we settled in Manhattan first and then in Brooklyn. We lived in Queens. So we lived there for three years. You guys live in like a little apartment? 
Yeah. In Manhattan, I think we lived underground. Oh, we lived oh. like underneath somebody's home, but it was like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I imagined like what, like, like a like, tunnel in the dirt. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I was like, you lived <laughs> underground? Like a, a burrow. Yeah. <laughs> so my dad finished his master's there, which is why we came to the US in the first place. He did his master's in New York City. And then after that, he um, got into a doctoral program at UGA. So we moved when I was seven. So going to Athens, Georgia was. Mm-hmm. Solely for because of your dad. Yeah, it wasn't like you were like this place is this place is amazing. No, no, No. (laughs) especially not Athens of like 1992. Mm. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I went. I went to elementary school there. Middle school rolls around, and I was just finishing up seventh grade when my dad finally graduated. And we had always been told by my parents and heard them having conversations about going back to Korea one day. But I don't know, like you're, you're, you're a kid, so you don't like really understand time. It's not like you're like you understand that time's ticking. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just I, I, I didn't really think we were going to go back. But no, they're like, OK, well, we're moving to Korea now. Your dad's done with his degree and we get to Korea and I mean, talk about culture shock. I don't think I experienced culture shock when we first moved here at four because I was so young. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was definitely a hard adjustment because my mom and dad told me that I cried a lot whenever they would leave me. Mm -hmm. um, What do you call that? It's not, I don't think they called it PMO back then. What's PMO? Oh, daycare, daycare. Oh. Parents morning out. Oh. How do you know it as? You don't know it as PMO? Do you know it as MMO? Mother's morning, Mother's Day out, MDO, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I think they that's changed so that because it's sexist. Yeah. So that's why they call it PMO. Parents oh, I've never heard PMO because I've oh. only ever heard it. That's so funny. I was like, what the hell is PMO? <laughs> About time. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so they would drop me off at daycare and my dad said that like I would cry so hard for him not to leave me um, because I didn't know how to speak English and I was afraid because nobody looked familiar to me. And you know, at four... And um, I, I, I do I do remember I didn't know how to ask the teacher to use the bathroom. And oh, so I, I peed all over the napping mat. my God. Yeah, Wait. So at four. Okay, okay. I yeah, like, yeah, I was four. I was this like, was in New York. Okay, okay. Yeah, in second grade? No, no. I, <laughs> no, I was like in seventh grade when you moved to Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that explains a lot. <laughs> oh, but that's sad. You yeah, know, so you know. I... I'm sure it was a difficult transition, but I don't remember it. I don't remember it enough to call it culture shock. But man, when we moved to Korea, when I was going into eighth grade, that was a culture shock because I could tell how much I didn't know and how much I didn't fit in. Um, Mm. I had to very quickly learn how to adapt to my heritage and like my native country's culture. I got in trouble for looking at teachers in the eye when they were talking to me. Really? Because they told me I I, I shouldn't do that because it's disrespectful. Um, so you 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 know you kind of had to like look down. Yeah, so it was a lot. I mean, it was a lot to adapt to at that young age when you hardly know what's happening to your own body, like save your thoughts and your feelings and your identity. I mean, it was a lot. Were those fond memories? Like the first year was pretty miserable. School life was miserable, but it did push me to be closer to my family. Like my, we, we moved back in with my grandparents. Okay. So oh. my grandpa walked me to school every day. Um, and we lived like that for three years. And then the last year we moved to the capital 
Seoul together. My grandparents stayed where they were in Daegu. And then it was just my parents and me and my brother who moved to Seoul. That last year was a lot of fun. Why why did you guys move to the capital? Okay, I don't remember if my dad's job was in the capital or not, but I do know I got into a big prestigious school. Oh. Like that was part of the reason for the move. Wow, look at you making waves in Korea. Oh my gosh. I worked my tail off to try to become a top student in Korea. So they, so they rank you. They rank every single student. Every single test you take <sighs> and all your scores, they give you a ranking. So there were like 290 students in the seventh grade. I, so I, I went into the second semester of seventh grade when mm-hmm. I first moved to Korea. And there were like 290 students in the seventh grade. And the very first midterm that I took, I placed 288. And then by the time I graduated from middle school, I was number 11. Damn. In the whole class. In the whole grade, I mean. Wow. Oh my God. At age 12, I was drinking coffee in the morning because I would wake up at like 4 a.m. to study before I went to school. Wow. So the first year that I moved to Korea, I didn't have any friends. And I noticed quickly that the popular kids were the ones that did really well in school. I always tried to be a good student while I was here too, but I definitely went to all lengths at that young tender age to perform as best as I could and excel academically because that's what I thought would make me accepted in Korean society. That's like the code that you figured out how to switch to. Yeah. That's what I thought like by their cultural standards or the way that I perceived them. I had to be a top student in order to make friends, in order to be, you know, popular with peers, in order to be like visible to teachers. I thought that's what I needed to do. Mm. And so, yeah, I feel like I was learning code switching from a very early age. Mm -hmm. I guess I was sensing my own adaptability and how I was learning to do that by basically being thrust into situations where I just had to sink or swim. Yeah. And then we moved back and I didn't know that that was coming either. I thought I was going to be going to college in Korea. Really? Mm -hmm. Did you think the rest of your life was going to be in Korea? Mm -hmm. Wow. So we came back in the wintertime. I want to say it was like right after Christmas. What is that? Sophomore year? An ideal time. Oh my gosh. In a teenager's life. Talk about feeling like an idiot. I felt like an idiot walking into high school in Athens. Did you acclimate quickly? In January. Or what? No. So January through May and that summer was me trying to wash away my fobbiness Mm. that I had learned and put on in Korea for the past four years. Those first months back was me trying to, oh my gosh, it was me trying to get tan again. Oh, really? So you like laid out? Four, yeah. I would lay out like, I remember, I think I laid butt house naked like outside <laughs> on my porch one time because I was so pasty from four years in Korea. And then I, and I was like continuing my little homemade transformation. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started dating a boy, but he was white. I felt like that was the last piece of my transformation, but the most critical. Mm-hmm. It was the most critical because that that was a whole education in 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 all of it that I that I needed to like catch up to where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. So it was like teenage love, but it was so much more. It was mm-hmm. like an education into into Americanness. I guess I should say whiteness. 
white Americanness. Yeah. But yeah, before that point where I dated him, I had had non-Asian friends growing up who were very close to me, but it was in dating him that I really, I feel like white people felt more humanized to me, more relatable. It did change my life in terms of how, um, I don't know, how comfortable, I guess, is the word, how comfortable I also feel around non-Asian people in America. My dad didn't really give me input about what I should major in in college or anything like that. I think he kind of was like, you know, let, left me to decide. But my mom like wanted me to become a doctor or wanted me to become a nurse. So she would tell me like I should do pre-med. But Sam's dad would, he'd be like, so what do you, what do you think you want to major in? And I don't know, like they added value to my life in that way too, where they were, they were kind of like showing me like the, that extra bit of, um, inventiveness that Americans have that white Um, people had when I was growing up that mm -hmm. I felt like I was missing. I couldn't think creatively and independently and so interesting entrepreneurially enough. Yeah. Because we're so as Asians, like you were saying, the way that we're raised, we're like told what to do. Mm -hmm. We're told what's expected of us and we just need to meet it, you know? But in so many ways, like the ways that I saw his parents raise him and his brothers it was like they gave them so much freedom Mm -hmm. and let them experience things, experiment with things. Confidence. Yeah. So like I got some of this from their family enveloping me in. It was definitely, they added elements to my life that I otherwise would not have gotten. So it was way more than just a romance, a teen romance between Mm -hmm. me and him. Mm -hmm. It was was a life experience, Mm -hmm. I feel like, and an identity experience. And we would talk about this kind of stuff too. Like he's the one who introduced me to diaspora, like the idea of that and would buy me books on it to like read about. Your that. boyfriend's dad? Yeah. What? So he's a professor at UGA. Oh. Um, and, and, and then, so when we would talk about college and he asked me, you know, like, where are you applying? What kind of programs are you looking into? What are you interested in? So I told him, you know, I kind of, maybe I want to be a lawyer. And so he was like, do you know anything about law? Like, what, what makes you think that, you know? And then he went and got me several books that Christmas as part of my Christmas present. Oh. He got me several books on law just so I could read about it and decide if this is actually what I wanted to do or not. Mm-hmm. Actually, my parents, I think I told you this before. My parents, um, they really did encourage conversation around the dinner table with us. But it just wasn't about these kinds of questions. Mm. It would be about like morality oh. <laughs> or it would be about spirituality. It would be about the meaning of life. Oh, it was wow. very philosophical, very spiritual, historical, but not in terms of like life choices yeah. or practical decisions and, and, and fostering my um, inner voice. Mm-hmm. But that was where Sam's family like really, they sparked a fire in me where it was very small at the time, but it stayed it stayed with me. And then late in later years, after my own like mental health breakdown, after, you know, many years of my own like wandering and stuff like beyond their family and beyond our relationship, I was able to stoke that fire again on my own and build it up larger and larger. You know, I think they definitely planted seeds in my mind that I still carry with me today. Just like a way of thinking and a way of being, you know. Do you and Andrew feel you've said it's something that you feel endeared to 
this part of white culture, right? And then you guys like kind of sought it out in each other. Actually, I don't know what I'm going with this. Do you think it's wanting to ask like, is there, if Andrew and I have parts of us that are self-hating? A rejection of Asian culture, I guess. But it doesn't, I guess I'm like answering in in my head already, but I mean, you can speak Mm -hmm, to it too. mm -hmm. But I think for us, Andrew and me in particular, both of us are not, it's not a rejection of Asian culture. I think our reasons are different. For him, it's an unknowing or an unfamiliarity with Asian Mm -hmm, culture. mm -hmm. He, you know, his dad passed away when he was four. And then so his mom raised him and they lived in in Greenwood, Mississippi, where there was little to no Asian influence or presence. And then after moving here to, to Atlanta, his mom didn't like plug him into heavy Asian influence communities or, or things like that. So, um, so I think for him, it's literally like he has had so little exposure mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. his Asian heritage. Yeah. I mean, the man has never been to China or Taiwan. Like that boggles my mind that he has never been I've to- I've never been to China or Taiwan either. See, that boggles my mind too. But I think it it's mind boggling to me because I got to have this really unique experience where I got to like be completely immersed yeah. in, in my parents' culture of origin. Yeah. In my culture of origin too, since I was born there, you know? So I think I, because I was blessed with this unique experience where I got to be immersed in it, that I'm like, wow, yeah. like I wish that. Yeah. I wish the positive part of that for you yeah. and for Andrew or any other Asian American I know who hasn't been able to connect um, that intimately. Yeah, I would love that. I think in, you know, at your age, like when it happened, I think it would be, I feel like it would be awful. It was god awful, yeah. <laughs> but, but now I'm like, oh, I wish I could be immersed in it in like yeah. for a few years, you know? Yeah. There were times in my life where I did wonder if I was one of those self-hating Asian girls that didn't want to go out with Asian guys. I've wondered that about myself before because I had come across that stereotype or that idea mm-hmm. and kind of like gawked at it and been like, well, that's fucked up. But then been like, do I, am, am I like that? You know? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it it was survival-based. And I know you and I have talked about this before. I think because not only did my family move us around a lot into drastic culture changes, but, you know, my childhood home environment also felt very tumultuous and unpredictable. So I think whether at home or out in society, in culture, wherever, like I was... I was always trying to survive the moment mm-hmm. and survive the place. And so if there were moments where I wonder if I was a self-hating Asian, it makes me think that at that time, it wasn't to my surviving interest mm-hmm. to identify with Asianness. But I do think that in centering whiteness mm-hmm. and identifying with whiteness or just, just crossing like into that camp, it's hard to it's hard to separate that from self-hating your culture of origin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's hard to separate that. Yeah. It's almost like by proxy you are self-hating. Yeah, that's the question. I feel like that I can't. It's tricky. Yeah, I don't think and I I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be black or white. And I think it's going to be all of it together. It's not it's not always going to be like so explicit as self-hate, but it would just be like questioning like what, you know, mm-hmm. questioning your identity. Mhm. I'll say this in the past, like in high school, when I just moved back, there were a group of a very small group of Asian kids. They were kind of like they were like on the periphery of the social scene, very much in the margins. I wanted to be part of the active like 
popular group in school. And 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 this this Asian group like was not it. Like mm. they were not a part of that active mm-hmm, social mm-hmm. scene. So I didn't want to hang out with them. I didn't want to like further my relationships with them or like become better friends with them or be identified with them even. Like it does get tricky in that sense yeah. because it does feel self-hating. Now, so in the past, I would have foregone that group. When I see that now, like if there are a group, if if there are like a, a group of um, other moms, whether they're like Asian or otherwise, like they're just not in the center. Basically, I don't care about that anymore. Yeah, I used to care about that a lot more, but I think it's also because I feel more secure in myself today than I did then. So I wouldn't, I don't do that today, but yeah. I I do own that I did that then. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, I see. I don't even know how to explain this, but it's been just caught like a hairball in my throat for decades. I have wanted to, and now I know, like I've wanted to decenter whiteness in my conversations with my really longtime white friends, but I have been afraid to because I'm a, I'm I'm totally afraid of um, if they'll be offended or feel hurt. And I also cannot stomach them telling me that that's not actually how it is, Mm. that maybe I'm just making it about race when it's not about that at all. Like I take that as gaslighting Mm -hmm. my reality and I just can't stomach that anymore. And so I don't, I don't want that response either. And so I just, I haven't been able to with, I have actually been able to with newer white friends more easily because like we were saying earlier, I'm kind of in this mindset of, okay, like if you completely take this the wrong way or take one of these option A, B, C, D, E, like of negative reactions, then our relationship will just naturally fizzle out and that's okay, you mm-hmm. know? But I think of my old friends, yeah, I feel so hesitant. Because mm, you still have history together. It's so much history. And yeah. then it's like too much time has gone by for me to bring it up now. Let me tell you about one instance with one of these friends. She was one of my bridesmaids. I love her dearly. Back, back in the day, way before Andrew and I were together, we went on a little girl's trip. We went down to um, her current husband's family's property in South Georgia. Having two properties is very white. (laughs) It is also something that I aspire to. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You know, Andrew and I always love to be like, hey, if we had to pick between like a mountain cabin or a beach house, which one would we pick? (laughs) What would you pick? Beach house. Mountain. Really? Mm -hmm. That's perfect. You can come to the beach with us and then we'll go to the cabins with you. (laughs) Um, We'll sign this. We'll sign on this later. Someone sponsor us. (laughs) I'm still waiting for a big break. They're like, when's it going to (laughs) happen? Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh, so, so yeah, we went down to this house and, um, and then like her current father-in-law, he came down there to take us out on the boat. They also have a boat. We, um, went out and it was just like her father-in-law and then me and my friend, he was kind of like, so like, you know, where'd you grow up? And I told him where I grew up and like, you know, primarily in Georgia. And I think I highlighted that part. I didn't say like, I grew up in Korea, but they moved here, but they moved to New York City and blah, blah, blah. Like I didn't do all that. I wasn't like, I'm an immigrant. Yeah. You know, My I mom leaned on me in New York. Right, 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 right. I skipped all that. I was like, I basically like grew up in Georgia, right? So he's like, oh, you know, so you're Southern too, huh? 
And when he said that, I felt honestly like I felt kind of good, like, oh, I'm being accepted, you know? But then my friend chimed in and she goes, Southern. She goes, South Korean. And she laughed, right? But the thing is, like, I've struggled with this and I've thought back on this scenario so many times because I've thought, how did I take her response? Because there's many, it's kind of like one of those choose your own ending stories. Like, I can see it both ways. I can see it as her being protective of who I really am right? and wanting him to see me as, a, as who I truly am. right? Or the other thing could be her sort of like excluding me. What you said and earlier. otherizing me. Yeah. What you said earlier that you will never be honorary yeah. white. But, and, and in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I literally could see it going both ways, 50 50. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both scenarios make sense, just mm-hmm. like those choose your own ending stories. Yeah. Today, in this moment, I appreciate her with ending one, trying to get her father in law, her very white Southern father in law, to see me as I truly am, because I am comfortable with who I truly I am see. today. But back then, I was really upset and believed it was ending two that she was otherizing me. When I had my chance of being accepted, she had to point out that I was different. She had to point out that I'm not who he wants me to be because I want to be what he wants me to be. I felt this sense of like betrayal and like anger and and just kind of like, man, she just went and fucked it up. Gosh, yeah. That reminds me of what Kathy Park Hong writes about in Minor Feelings. And I'll read a little blurb. It says, after hearing a racist remark, the speaker asks herself, what did you say? She saw what she saw. She heard what she heard. But after her reality had been belittled so many times, she begins to doubt her very own senses. Mm -hmm. Such disfiguring of senses engenders the minor feelings of paranoia, shame, irritation, and melancholy. And I guess what you were saying, it, it reminds me of that because, you know, even though now you're sure of your answer or like now you're sure of like, you know, what you felt back then or, you know, you can mm-hmm. you, you can say what it is now. I can make sense of it a little bit. Yeah, better. but there, I feel like there's always that sense of like, what did you say? You know, like we don't know how to take things. Like there's mm-hmm. always an undertone of we just have to question our belonging. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I know totally. it's not that you want to be white but belonging though yeah i want to be seen for who i am but still belong yeah and so by even you know that dad asking that question it questions your belonging i just remember feeling upset Mm -hmm. i was upset because i literally felt like i was about to be accepted and my friend slapped the hand Mm -hmm. that was reaching out to Mm -hmm. me it's like some embarrassment about it yeah yeah in that moment, it was a self-hating moment for me where I like hated that she pointed out what was true. Like I hated that she pointed out that I was actually South Korean, yeah. not Southern white. Yeah. Because they don't know how hard you've been working. <laughs> like, you know, they yeah. don't know that you made this boyfriend for this <laughs> reason. You know, <laughs> uh, Like it just, it stayed with me though. I know Andrew said he didn't want you to talk about anything white, whiteness. Oh, we already talked about so much of it. <laughs> I'm just gonna be like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and then she said, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> you think people will do anything to not feel uncomfortable? No, I absolutely think so. 
especially in our day and age when we have so much at our disposal to not feel what we don't want to feel. Yeah, it's easy. It's as easy as just being non-confrontational, you know, as being a people Mm -hmm, pleaser. mm -hmm. It doesn't even mean that like you walk into something uncomfortable and then you... I don't know. It, it, we can just get by with like mm-hmm. not having to see people, not having deep conversations. Someone asks you, how are you doing? And they you throw it right back to them saying, I'm good. But yeah, but tell me how you're doing. That's something that a lot of people do, you know, mm-hmm. especially Asian Americans. It's like a burden to let someone know how they're actually doing. Or it's like, it's almost like they want you to be vulnerable. Right. But they're not willing yes. to be themselves. Exactly. Yeah. That's. I feel like that's a way of like evading yeah. discomfort, yeah. you know. I do want to say this. I know a lot of people might be thinking, why do you want to feel uncomfortable? Like, what are you trying to get out of questioning yourself like this and and examining yourself and trying to get other people to do the same? Like, what's the point of it? I don't think you're truly able to empathize or understand any other human being until you Mm. can empathize with yourself. And Mm -hmm, what that mm -hmm. means is you have to be willing to get uncomfortable enough with yourself to examine your own life Ooh. and who you are. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I really feel like ever since starting this podcast with you, even before this podcast, since you and I just started being able to have conversations mm-hmm. and make time for a conversation, I have really, really loved the feeling of being able to have these new conversations with some friends. And feeling our friendship strengthening, just becoming so much more robust and full. Rich. Mm-hmm. Rich. And it grows the love between you and that person mm-hmm. too, because you start to feel this trust that you can talk about anything together and you'll still be friends at the end of it. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful and very rare thing. Yeah, that's amazing. What, what changes have you seen? In yourself, if any. I think similar. Like, I feel like this has definitely got me, like I've had to practice like digging deep into these thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to articulate it, yeah. you know, because I think I mean, me and you, I feel like we're, for me, I'm definitely used to writing it out and having to think and like ruminate for like long periods of time. That's something that I still enjoy doing and I like doing and I feel like it is like a strength, mm-hmm. but having to like articulate it to another person like on the spot. Yes. You know, that I feel like I feel like my brain is like spasming like when I'm, you know, <laughs> I, like what I imagine is just I'm like, you know, just eye like, twitching. Eye twitching. Yeah. Just, yeah, my brain's like shooting sparks everywhere. I feel like it is kind of like a muscle of like being able to con- what we've said before, like connect dots. Mm-hmm. I do feel like there, this is particular to us and maybe just like as women, but being able to like weave in and out of like stories and thoughts and feelings and kind of like s- circularly, mm. right? Um, I, I appreciate that a lot because I feel like that I, I love it and I appreciate it. And I feel like that's how I like to converse and how I like to hear other people converse. But it has helped me like practice just like being more like sharp, I think getting to a point when I need to, and um, and then just like pulling like the connections, like making the connections. Because oftentimes I was talking about this with Stan because I think oftentimes like just in casual conversation with Stan, um, I think I rely on him to like bridge the uh, the blank spaces where I'm yeah. like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I think I do that with you too. <laughs> I think I'm like I rely on you to be uh, like the one where I'm like I. I say a bunch of things. I'm like, connect it, please. You know, like yeah. connect these pieces. Yeah. I feel like I'm having to 
Um, I, I feel that from you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I feel it in a way like I let you down a lot. Like, like you throw me the ball and it hits me in the head. <laughs> You're like, like this? I'm like, no. <laughs> it just has to be like square between the eyes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. I catch it. Because my eyes twitching over here, too. <laughs> No, I think you do a great job. I think you do a really great job. I think we are the yin and yang here. We are the yin and yang in this conversation, but we also both still carry that whole like uh, more of like, I don't even know if it's like a female way of like talking, but just like things are a little bit more circular. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. Um, it's all like interlaced and interconnected. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I like that. You know, I think um, so I can appreciate that too. Shall we cheers? Yeah, I'm going to grab your first cup. Right, let's let's see what this sounds like. <laughs> let me do, let me do this. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. 